Hey, my name is Chad Butterworth. I've been going to this church in Midtown since the beginning, and it's been awesome. Before I met Jesus, I was seeking approval from others. My world crumbled, and I realized I was putting on a front to gain my friends and relationships. I wanted these relationships to satisfy my deepest needs, my deepest wants. But a day came when I felt empty and depressed, and I lost joy in life. Everything seemed to disappear. Then I met Jesus, and everything changed. I realized that I'm loved, that I'm accepted, that I don't have to work for my relationships, that God gave me them, and He satisfies my deepest needs and my deepest wants through the cross and through Jesus. Encountering Him has restored my joy, my love for life. That's something to be really thankful for. And I know that I have an incredible future in heaven and an eternal relationship with God. And that's by grace. By grace, God changed me from rejected to accepted. And I'm really happy about that. Well, good morning, everybody. Chad, thanks for sharing your story with us this morning. I'm glad that you're really happy about that. How Jesus changed your life. That's really awesome. Hey, um... If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Church, and so glad that you have joined us this morning. We are uh, continuing a series that we started two weeks ago that we're calling Encountering Jesus. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the book of John and really focusing in on the first five chapters of the book of John, where John lays out just these... Uh, Numerous of inter- nu- numerous interactions that Jesus had with various people, and it's just these different encounters that he, he allows us to kind of be like a fly on the wall in on these conversations and get to hear these really life changing interactions that take place that change their lives, and I think also can change our lives. And so I'm really enjoying this series. It's fun to get to read this these these interactions from John. If like I've said a couple of weeks now, but like John was Jesus' best friend. He, he was his closest disciple. He, he, always, he had the name, uh, the one that Jesus loved. That's how he would refer to himself, which is kind of a funny way to refer to yourself. But that's what John did. They were that close. And so you see someone who's eyewitness, but not just an eyewitness account of Jesus, but actually that close, that intimately connected to Christ and get to hear these conversations that Jesus had with these different people. So first week we talked about uh, how uh, the interaction Jesus had with John the Baptist, who we called the confident servant. And then last week it was with Jesus' interaction encounter with one of his first disciples, uh, Nathaniel. We called him the skeptical student. Today we get to listen in on a conversation Jesus actually has with his own mom, with Mary, and uh, who I'm calling the, the, the joy-seeking mother, which is kind of funny sounding. But... um. He, it's a uh, it's this really intriguing conversation uh, between Jesus and his mom, uh, primarily or for one reason because it, it's a little bit of a tense conversation. It's, it, it's a little terse. It's a little short, and, and so that that kind of has full of intrigue in and of itself. But even more than that, what we'll see today is that in this encounter with Jesus and his mom at a wedding. You learn a ton about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and where joy, the joy that we are all looking for, where that joy is found. In fact, where we're going with this message this morning and just kind of outlined is that we're going to talk about how there is a shortage of joy. 
but that how Jesus is the provider of joy, the joy that we all long for. And then we're going to talk and kind of wrap it up with how we can receive this joy from Jesus. So we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or pull it up on your phones or whatever you can. Uh, also, we'll have the words up here on the screen for you. So if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, I want you to know we're giving away Bibles for free at the resource table. We'd love for you to have one. And you read it during the week, and uh, that would be awesome. So please take one of those. But anyways, John chapter 2, 1 through 11, that's where we'll be this morning. But before I read that, I want to give us a little context because this passage, it, it opens up with Jesus and his mom and Jesus' disciples all at a wedding feast. And it's worth noting that in that day and age, especially, uh, you know, just traditional uh, and cultural environment there, that the weddings were so much of a bigger deal for them than they are for us today. Even though weddings are still a very big deal for us today. In fact, I was at a wedding last night. I got to officiate Stephen Lexi's wedding, who are members of our church, and they got married, and they both said, I do, so that was a good thing, and they both showed up, and it was, it was a really great wedding. It was a lot of fun, but what's different about their wedding, though, it was just, it was a great wedding, great food, great times, but not everyone in the city of Austin was invited to their wedding, but in Jesus' day and age, where this wedding was in Cana, every, the whole town was invited to the wedding. And the reason the whole town gets invited to the wedding, the reason the wedding is such a bigger deal for them, is because in their culture, the, the, the personal happiness of the individuals getting married, that was a, that's still a big deal within the marriage, but it wasn't primary. It wasn't the biggest deal. That The biggest deal within a wedding was really the, the, the well-being of the commonwealth of the entire community. Because marriage wasn't really specifically, or most importantly, about the individuals as much as it was about the forming of a new family that would bring uh, more stability to a community, that would pr- provide uh, a new, uh, you know, new members of the community through childbirth, which is a helpful thing to stabilize and make a community strong. It'd be better for its military security. It was just, marriages were one of the big things that the, the, the community uh, really uh, cherished, valued, because it made the whole city more stable and to help it flourish. And therefore, a wedding was something that not just the individuals were celebrating, but the whole community was celebrating. Which is why the, the weddings in that day and age, they would go on for like a week, like days and days and days. And it was a really, really big deal. Now, Given that background, we can understand that our text I'm about to read, it opens abruptly on a great disaster. Because a very prematurely, at this wedding, they had run out of wine. And wine, then, and often still today at weddings, is kind of the, the key element. If the wine runs out, the party is over. And so yeah, the party was ending very prematurely, which was to the great shame of those that were throwing the wedding. Like this would in a, in a shame and a shame and honor culture. If, if you let the whole town down, like you're going to carry this guilt, you're going to carry this shame forever. This is a huge disaster. But Jesus does something pretty awesome. So let me, let me read it here and we'll, uh, we'll, begin to unpack it. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Verse 1 says, uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he, uh, uh, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And I love this passage. I've been looking forward to talking about this all week, but it, it, there's, there's a lot going on here and it's really a lot below the surface. And so you're going to have to like follow me here. I'm going to, I'm going to tie it all together in a little bit. But the first thing I want us to see is that here the, the wine has run out, which is going to be a bit of a, a symbol of the fact that for us, the, there's a joy shortage. There's a, there's a shortage of joy. In fact, there was an old rabbinical uh, statement from this time that said this. It said, uh, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Surprised I didn't get any amens from from that. (laughs) But there's this connection to the wine with the wine to joy. And where the wine had run out, there's a symbol of that joy has also run out. And guys, let me make my big philosophical statement here, but... We all, know, we all know it's true, and it's just kind of sad to admit, but doesn't the wine always run out? Doesn't it? Like, there's, there is a shortage of joy. That in our day and age, especially, we feel this. Like, back in that culture, that time, they cared about their happiness, but they didn't care about it primarily. There was, there was a lot more to, like, the uh, seeking honor, or what's best for the community. But for us, for our day and age, man, individual pursuit of happiness, individual pursuit of joy, like, like that kind of takes the cake, doesn't it? I and mean, that's really what we want. We all want joy. And yet it seems like for us right now, joy is scarcer than it's ever been. That we want joy so desperately, so severely, and yet we just can't seem to wrap our arms around it for long. And sure, we, there are times where we think we found it, right? Like it's oftentimes when we find something new, and it's that new relationship, it's, it's that new someone, it, it's, it's, your, it's when you get, first get married, or you first get that new job, or you first taste success in your career, or you get that first promotion, 
or whatever it is. And then you think, man, at that moment, at that time, you feel the sense of, of deep, satisfying joy that you think this is it. This is the thing that is going to bring me what I've been looking for all my life. And yet after time, and sometimes it doesn't take very long at all, you realize that, man, the thing that you have wrapped your arms around to bring you the joy that you've always wanted begins to disappoint. Does it not? And it's not that it's no good to you at all. It just, you realize it doesn't actually fully satisfy. It doesn't consistently bring you the level of joy that you seem, that you really want, that you long for. And there could be good things, but they're just, you realize they're not the thing. They don't fully satisfy you. The, the, the wine ends up running out. The, there's a shortage of joy. When this happens, guys, we, we can respond in a, a number of different ways. But common responses are, to either blame the thing that we were hoping to bring us joy, or it's, it's to blame ourselves, or it's to blame the ideal. And so, like, for example, like, oftentimes we blame the thing that we thought was going to bring us joy. So we thought that marriage or that person, we thought that that job or that experience or that hobby, that was going to be the thing that brought us the joy that we've all been looking for, and then it doesn't. And so it's that thing's fault. And so what do we do? We trade it in for another wife or another husband or another girlfriend or another job or another experience, thinking that would be the thing. But it's not. And so we trade it. But we blame the thing. That's the common response. Or we'll blame ourselves, right? And so we'll think, well, if I only if I was better. Like if only I had been able to do better, meet up my standards or my boss's standards or whoever's standards, then I could have gotten the job that I thought would give me the joy, but I didn't get that job because... I'm not good enough, or I could have gotten that girl, but I wasn't good enough, or if, if I only was in more in shape, then I could have gotten that guy or that girl, and yeah, that didn't happen. So what, what do we do when that happens, when you start blaming yourself? Where do you go with that? Where do you go with that? You just try harder, don't you? You try harder, and isn't that exhausting? Because it is. It's so exhausting, and you beat yourself up because you, you just begin to have some kind of self-hate. I'm the thing that's keeping me from having the thing that I really want, the joy that I'm looking for. And it's, man, it's no way to live. Or you blame the ideal, which is a convenient way to go, but it's so dangerous. What I mean by this is when you blame the ideal is that you, you just decide, you know what, this whole idea of finding this joy that's really going to satisfy me is just, it's just a lie. Like when I was young, I had, oh, I was so idealistic. I thought I could find this joy, this thing, this person, this job, whatever, that was going to really make me come alive. But now I realize this, that there's just nothing really to that. Everything will disappoint, and therefore I will never really have that joy. That Even the idea of that is just not worth pursuing. And so you dumb down your expectations, and you kill your hopes. And the danger of this is that you mute your heart, and you settle. And it's no way to live. There's another response that we can have when we realize the things that we're looking for to bring us joy aren't bringing us the joy that we all desire. When we realize there's a joy shortage, there's another thing that we can do. It's radically different than those other three things. And it's a Christian response of realizing that we don't have joy. And that response, basically, you can say that what you blame is not yourself or it's not the thing, it's not the ideal, but instead what you blame is your separation from God. Did you blame the fact that you're separated from God as a th- reason that you have not finding the joy that you were designed for and that you 
long for, that you see, man, I could have the joy that my heart craves if I could be, if I could enter into an established relationship with the one who made me and who I was made for. I think this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at when he had made that great quote on the radio, BBC radio show. Uh, he, he said this, so the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and suggest the real thing. Lewis is saying that the reason we feel a joy shortage is because there's nothing in this world that was really created to satisfy the the longing for joy that we have. Because we were created for and by someone else. In this passage we're looking at today, Jesus is at a wedding. They've run out of wine. He's confronted with the shortage of joy. But when he decides that he's going to make more wine, what he is saying is, hey, I, I've come to, to fill up what was lacking. And I have come to provide you, the joy that you have always longed for. In verse 8, we're told that there is a master of ceremonies, kind of introduced to this guy, the master of ceremonies. It was his job to call people to celebrate and make sure that all of the conditions of the party were right. Like bottom line, it was his job to make sure that the party was great. But do you see what Jesus does that when he turns the water into wine? Like he's saying, I'm the true master of the ceremony. I'm the one that's really here to make sure that the party is great. I'm the true Lord of the feast, if you will. And I'm here to bring festival joy. That's what I have ultimately come to bring. That's why this is called by John, Jesus' first sign. Like, don't miss this. Like, this can sound all like a big metaphor, and I'm trying to read too much into this passage. Like, the wine is joy, and Jesus come to provide joy. But verse 11 is key to understanding this passage. In verse 11, it says this. This, the first of his, notice the word here, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or displayed his glory. That this was not just simply called a miracle. The turning the water into wine was not just a miracle. It was actually a sign. And a sign is a word that used to say that it was symbolic. It signified something else. That Jesus didn't have to exercise his power in this situation. But he did. And when he did, he became the, it became the first of his signs by which he revealed his glory, his true identity to others, and communicated what he had come for. Guys, like, don't miss this. This is a big deal. Like, if you are launching a new brand as an entrepreneur, or you are uh, running for office 
as a politician or you're like a musician and you're going to launch your first record, like you're going to pay close attention, very meticulous attention to your first public appearance to make sure that everything that's happening in that moment is going to really communicate who you are and what you're about. Are you not? Well, guys, this is Jesus' very first sign. This is his first public miracle. It's where he's going public to say, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about. This is what I have come for. And notice, like you would think that it would be him raising someone from the dead, or feeding 5,000, or doing something that just blows everyone away, and that everybody pays attention to. But Jesus' first sign is to make a couple, like over a hundred gallons of really good wine to make sure that a party keeps going. And you're like, wait a second. Like what, what in the world now? Just quick aside. This is one of this is the very many, many, many reasons why I believe that we can trust that this is a, a firsthand account of Jesus's life. This was not written centuries after Jesus. Someone just made up these myths to make us think that Jesus was God. This is why, this is just one of the many reasons I believe that this is, we can trust this. John, who was Jesus' best friend, saw Jesus do this. He was at this wedding, wrote this down. Because why would he make this up? If this is Jesus' first sign, you go for the grand slam. You don't say water to wine. You say raise the dead. Like you don't, you don't make this up. You don't go here unless this is actually what happened. But the reason this is here is because this is actually what happened. But why did it happen? If you're scratching your head, if you're thinking, man, like this doesn't make sense. Like why this is his first sign. Then I say something kind of bold here, but I want to get your attention. If you scratch your head, like why would Jesus do this first? And I would say that that should help you understand that you don't fully understand who Jesus is and what he came here to do. So because the reason that Jesus had this be his first sign. Turn water to wine. Keep a wedding feast going. It's because what Jesus came here to do, friends, is to make that not happen. <laughs> he came to remedy the fact that there's a shortage of joy. He came to bring us joy. Festival joy. Unending joy, the joy that we've all longed for, that our hearts all crave. That's what Jesus came to bring. This is even heightened all the more when you get the context that this is taking place at a wedding and when you understand what the Bible says about the relationship that God desires for us and how the Bible says that our story or at least this chapter of it, if you will, how the biblical story ends. Because the way it ends is with a wedding. That Jesus came so that we, those who put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you who enter into the family of God, that we could be forever joined with the God who created us and knows us and loves us, that we would be forever united with him. And it's in that relationship that we will have the joy that our hearts have always longed for. That's what Jesus came to bring. That's why he came. And that in, when he shows us that in like, well, God says like throughout the Bible, 
that he wants more than just a relationship of that of like a king to his servants with his people. That what he really wants, and it's wild, it's just wild terminology, but what it says is that God says over and over again that what the kind of relationship he longs to have with his people is that of a husband to a wife, that of a bridegroom to a, a bride. He wants that kind of intimate relationship with his people. And then we're told in the end of the story, in Revelation 19, that that's what's going to happen. In fact, Revelation 19, 7 and 9 says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21, 1 and 2 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as what? As a bride, adorned for her husband. In other words, at the end of time, guys, the end of the biblical story, the end of this chapter, there's going to be a wedding. And there's going to be a banquet, and not just a general banquet, it's going to be a wedding feast. It's going to be a feast to end all feasts. That Jesus has come so that it would be possible for us to experience the incredible joy that comes from being passionately loved by the one who understands you, who knows you the most, and yet still fully accepts you. That the, 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 the rapturous love of a wedded couple on earth is just a dismal hint of the joy that we will experience because of what Jesus came to bring us. That we know, and many of us have tasted this idea of this joy that comes from someone, just like girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever, like that, that knows you well, that knows you everything, almost everything, like not quite everything. You're not going to really let them know everything, but they know more than everybody else. They know, and they still accept you. Like, is there not joy there? Oh yeah, there's joy there. But God, here's God who does know everything. He knows even the things that you won't even admit about yourself. He knows all of those things. And that here's God, 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 who says, I fully accept you and I want to be with you. I love you. There's joy in that. And then there's this joy. We know the joy, right? When someone, someone you really admire, who you respect more than anyone else gives attention to you, is there not joy? Is there not like a thrill in that? But here, guys, Jesus came so that the one to be admired and respected more than any other, God himself would not just give you attention, but say that I want to be with you forever and ever and bind himself to you and you to him. Is there not incredible joy there? Absolutely incredible joy. You know the joy, guys, the joy of being in a relationship with someone that you think and I know this really well, where I think, man, like, I've married way in over my head. Like, I, I am with someone that I absolutely do not deserve. I don't deserve her love. I don't deserve her acceptance, her service, her kindness towards me. I do not deserve it. And there's so much joy in that relationship. But guys, how much more? Seriously, come on. How much more to have that from God? That we would be forever united with the one who we look at and think, okay, I'm definitely in over my head here. Because like, what? I mean, it's God. And he wants to be with me. That joy, that joy, 
Guys, that is, that's the joy we've all longed for. And that's the joy that Jesus came to bring. That we would be ushered into the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we would be wedded to the groom, the great groom, God himself. That we could enter into that relationship. That's the joy we've all longed for. Jesus came to bring that. And yet, you have Jesus at this wedding, and he's probably doing what single people often do at weddings. I used to do this when I'd go to weddings. You sit there, and you're you're there present at the wedding, but you also kind of got this long look, distant look in your eye, because you're looking past the current wedding to the the day you hope is coming for you, your future wedding. And I think Jesus is sitting here in this wedding, recognizing the shortage of joy. And he's thinking about the wedding that's to come and the infinite joy that's going to be found there. But he's also beginning to taste the horrible sorrow that he's going to have to go through in order to bring that day about. See, in order for Jesus to bring us what he came to bring us, this infinite joy, is going to cost him dearly. And I think that's the reason why you see this like tense interaction between Jesus and his mom here. Like just go back to that. He says, Mary comes to him and tells him, says, hey, have you heard? They're, they're out of wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, sometimes in the Greek, it just you get a poor translation from the Greek to the English. And it's not, but try to let Jesus off the hook a little bit here. But it's a good translation. It really is. Like it's really kind of a, this real direct statement. And like you think, man, what? Wow! Like what's what's going on here? And this, like, especially in a real family oriented, shame honor culture, it's like, man, this seems really cold. Like what? What's going on? It's, Something's got to really be bothering Jesus. And Jesus lets us know that there is actually something really weighing heavily on him when he says the statement, hey, my my hour has not yet come. Because in the book of John, multiple times Jesus refers to his hour. John 8, John 12, John 13, John 17. Every time he refers to his hour, it's a reference to his hour on the cross. It's the hour of his death. And so... If understanding that bit of context, the way this conversation goes is that Mary comes to her son, Jesus, and says, hey, um, have you heard they're out of wine? And he says, hey, why are you telling me this? I'm not ready to die. He's like, whoa. Now, Mary, she just takes it in stride. Like, she must have been used to this kind of deal, not understanding Jesus. Just like, eh, whatever, just, hey, servants, just do whatever he tells you. And just kind of, just does kind of the motherly thing. Just kind of goes with the flow. But why is Jesus thinking about his death in this moment at this wedding when there's this shortage of wine, shortage of joy? Well, the reason is because... What's missing from what has to happen for a shortage of joy to be completely satisfied. For shame and guilt to be turned to rejoicing and celebrating is that Jesus is going to have to pay a ridiculous price. 
That Jesus came to bring us joy, but the way that Jesus is going to bring it is by going to the cross himself. It's helpful to, to, to just remember that like in, the, in this passage, the couple that was thrown in the wedding, that was getting married, like they really were going to experience some deep shame, some communal guilt for letting down their community by running out of wine. They really were going to, in the shame and honor culture, they, they, were, going to, they were going to be known forever as the couple that ran out of wine. But Jesus acts here in this wedding. He acts. And he turns this water to wine. And now, for, because Jesus would cover their shame and their guilt, they are now forever known as the couple who saved the best wine for last. I think that's beautiful. Guys, how that applies to us is that it also tells us that Jesus has to act to cover our shame and our guilt, that the best would still be yet to come for us. Don't let it be lost on you that, that the way that Jesus did this miracle is that he had the servants fill up these big jars that were used for purification. They're the ceremonial purification jars. And they were used within the Old Testament sacrificial system as the first step in cleansing yourself so that you could come before and present yourself to God and to the priests that represented him to be able to provide a guilt sacrifice for your sins, a blood sacrifice for your sins. And that Jesus, foreshadowing what he was going to do by going to the cross and dying in our place, he uses these purification jars to be the very thing that he's going to instrument, that he's going to employ to bring about the covering of their guilt and shame. And as the, this passage is just so rich, because it, it's a picture of what really the book of Hebrews like lays out in detail, which is that Jesus came to satisfy and to complete the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. That in Christ, from the, from the purification jars, the waters used for cleaning, all the way to the blood sacrifice, you have the one, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sin of the world. You have the one that really is the true one, that would satisfy our deepest need, which is our need for forgiveness, and for our guilt and shame to be covered. And I, I know it's so awkward to say this, and it's really not culturally, politically correct, but as we're all stained. We're all sinful. And in order to understand the incredible joy that Jesus brings, you have to first get that you are separated from God and that you don't deserve God's love. You deserve God's wrath. And that you have to be cleansed, that you have to be purified, that you have to be washed from your sins in order to be able to come into the presence of God. And guys, we, we all are sinful. I am so sinful that we're more sinful than we care to even admit to ourselves. But if if you struggle with admitting that you are sinful, it doesn't take long. If you just live for a while and, you're, and you are honest with yourself, 
then you'll, you'll see that there's things in your heart that will bite you. And you will do things that you'll think to yourself, I, I didn't even think I was capable of that. But we're all capable of that. That's why Jesus had to come for us. Because we needed to be cleansed. We needed our sins to be forgiven. And God, in all his glory and all his grace, did not leave things in this broken condition and did not request or demand that we were the ones to try to make things right because he knew we never could. But he himself atoned for our sins. Atone just simply means to make right, that he set right what our sins had set wrong. Jesus came and died in our place, the self-substitution of God. If that doesn't make sense to you, just think about it this way. Like We, we know that anytime someone does something wrong, there, there's a debt that is created. So if someone comes to your house and breaks a lamp, falls to the ground, breaks, then you have two options, right? You can either say, hey, you need to fix that. Buy me a new lamp, fix this one. Or you can say, hey, no, no worry, no worries. Ah, it's all forgiven. But even if you say it's all forgiven, there's still steps to be done, right? Because either there's a debt created, you have to go without a lamp, or you have to pay for the lamp to be fixed yourself or to go buy a new lamp. Like there's still something that has to be done that to forgive a debt still re- requires payment of that debt in some form or fashion, does it not? Because in this, we reflect some of the character of God. Like, the reason that God would demand a payment for our sins is not because God doesn't love us. It's because he's holy and just, and that's just the way the world works. When there's something that's been set wrong, it has to be set right. And either the person who set it wrong can set it right, or the person who forgives it can set it right, but someone has to set it right. And Jesus, God, looks at the earth and sees us destroying each other and destroying this creation. And he doesn't say, hey, no big deal, because it is a big deal. It is a a big deal. And he says, you know what? Instead of making you pay for it, I'm going to come. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to set it right, even though you set it wrong. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes to earth to set right this this world that's so lacking in the joy and the harmony and the peace that we all long for. And he says, I've come to bring that, but it's going to cost me my life, my death in your place. For you to drink the cup of everlasting joy, I'm going to have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. But because I love you so much, I'm willing to do it. And that's why he's awesome. And that's why we can have joy. Incredible joy, everlasting joy. Just think about how this brings us joy. This brings us joy because it tells us because of what Jesus did for us that we do not, we will not get the wrath, the bad that we deserve. 
And we will get the good, the blessing, the grace, the love, the acceptance that we never deserved. We do not get what we deserve. We get what we never deserved. And that's an incredible thing in the person of Jesus. I love how Milton Vincent puts this in his book, The Gospel, A Gospel Primer. I recommend all of you read this. But let me just read an excerpt from here. He says this. The more observed I am, absorbed I am in the gospel, which is what I'm talking about here, the more grateful, I'd add, the more joyful I become in the midst of my circumstances. Whatever they may be, viewing life's blessings as a water in a drinking cup, I know that I could discontently focus on the half of the cup that seems empty, or I could gratefully focus on the half that is full. Certainly the latter approach is better, the better of the two. Yet the gospel cultivates within me a richer gratitude and joy than this. The gospel reminds me first that what I actually deserve from God is a full cup churning with the torments of his wrath. This is the cup that would be mine to drink if I were given what I deserve. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. If there were merely the tiniest drop of blessing contained in the otherwise empty cup, I should be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of the, of God toward me. But that God in fact has given me a cup that is full of every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this without the slightest admixture of wrath leaves me truly dumbfounded with inexpressible joy. As for the specific earthly circumstances of plenty or want, I can see them always as infinite improvements on the hell that I deserve. Friends, if you really wrap your mind around that, then you will find joy. If you really get what you deserve and really get that what you deserved was the wrath of God, but what you've got instead is the love and acceptance by God, that you would be married to him, united to him forever and ever, the one who loves you and knows you. If you get that, how could you not have joy? How could we not have joy? Every metaphor in the Bible that God uses to tell us something about him also tells us something about how he sees us. And if God says that he wants to be our groom, that we are his bride, then does that tell us not just about the kind of relationship that he wants with us, but also how he views us? That God himself would see us, me and you, as his bride. You know how a groom looks at a bride when she's walking down the aisle? I'm there marrying off Steve and Lexi last night. Steve's sitting there watching, or standing there, watching Lexi come down the aisle of just beaming, right? Just beaming. He's just rejoicing that God would use this metaphor to communicate how he feels about us that is completely, guys, it's completely scandalous. It's just, but guys, that's how he views us. How would your life be transformed? How much more joy would you have if you lived by moment by moment understanding that that is how God views you if you're in Christ? In addition, we have joy because of Jesus, because we also have what we know is that what we, we know that the best is yet to come. That the best is yet to come. 
That no matter how hard our circumstances are, we can know that because Jesus, in this wedding feast, after creating, making this, the good wine, where everyone is singing and dancing and sipping the cup of joy, Jesus, in the midst of that, was sipping the cup of sorrow because what he knew, what was to come. If Jesus, and because Jesus did that, yes, we can, in the midst of this world, our world right now, all that's gone wrong, all the hardships, all the difficult circumstances that each one of us have in our lives, in the midst of the sorrow of our lives right now, because Jesus sipped the cup of sorrow in the midst of the joy of the wedding, we can sip the cup of joy now in the midst of our sorrow. Because we know what is to come because of what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did, we know the wedding, the ultimate union with the one that's going to bring us joy forevermore is to come. We have that to look forward to so we can have joy in our current circumstances no matter what they are. We have the joy of the, of the joyous wedding to come. How great is that? Guys, we can have joy. We have joy now. We can have joy forevermore. That's what Jesus came to bring. So how do you receive that joy? Well, you receive the joy by receiving Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, guys, today enter into that joy. That is my invitation. It's his invitation to you. Believe that he did this for you, that he died for you. Put your faith in him. Admit that you've sinned, that you need to be cleansed, but trust that he died so that you could be. If you do that, just simply tell him you believe it. Like, seriously, just say, I believe that. That's all it takes, because he did all the work for you. And you're just believing that. You then enter into a relationship with Jesus. And you are forever saved. But even more, you're ushered into his family. That you'll be, you get the joy you've always longed for. For those of us who've already put our faith in Christ, the way we receive this joy on a continuous basis is to remember what Jesus has done for us. Notice what Mary does in this story. The wine runs out. The joy runs out. Where does she turn? She doesn't turn to other things. She turns to Jesus. She goes to Jesus. Man, may we be like Mary, the joy-seeking mother. That we would not turn to other things for our joy, but we would go to Jesus. That we would remember Jesus. We'd go to Jesus every single day that we'd remember that because of Jesus, we're not getting what we deserve, but we're getting what we never deserve. Because of Jesus, we have the future to look forward to that is never-ending, forevermore, joy eternal. You'll find joy there. Go to him every day. One way to do that, guys, is by taking communion. So we're going to wrap up our time this morning by taking communion together. And communion was set up by Jesus as a way for us to remember what he's done for us until he returns for us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, he says it this way. He says, Jesus took bread on the night before he was, or the night he was going to be betrayed, the day before he's going to be crucified. He, he took bread with his friends and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And now listen to this. He says, and I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new 
with you in my Father's kingdom. And Jesus said, I want you all to remember what I'm going to do for you. So this bread is symbolic of my body. It was broken for you. This, this wine, this juice that we're drinking, we should have wine today. It would have been perfect. But it's, it's, it's a symbol of my blood that's poured out for you, that you could be purified, that you'd be cleansed, that you could enter into a new relationship, this new covenant relationship with God based not on what you do for God, but based on what God has done for you through Jesus. He said, now, when you remember this, when you take this, remember this, because there's going to be a day where I'm going to drink this with you. In fact, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until when? The wedding supper of the Lamb. When we are united with God forevermore, the relationship that will bring us the joy we've always longed for at that day will be a great day. A huge party and God himself will sit down and drink the wine with us. Jesus loved to talk about his blood as if it's wine because wine can do two things. It has, it has a, 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 the value of, of healing. You, you, you got an infection, you pour it on it, it it'll heal the infection. But even more than that, we know the wine will bring you incredible joy. Because that's what Jesus' blood has done for us.